Hello and welcome. It is March 30th, 2020, 2020, and we are in the midst of a pandemic. And the fear of death surrounds us. If we do not limit our exposure to media, we are constantly bombarded by rates of death, rates of infection. And as Irving Yalom would say, the fear of death always percolates beneath the surface and it haunts us throughout our lives. We erect defenses. Many are based in the denial of death and most are a way to cope with the awareness of our own mortality. I am an existentialist and for those who know me and know that I have faced death on a number of occasions, <laughs> um, I believe it is for me a natural way to be. Death surrounds us. My life has been immersed in death since I can remember. At the age of two, my nanny died. At the age of five, her husband, my grandfather, whom we called Fadi, died. And throughout the lifespan, I had young people die around me unexpectedly. Uh, a suicide of a friend at age 17, an unexpected death due to a embolism in the brain of a friend who was only 15 at the time. And the usual chronology is that we don't expect our children to die before us, but one of my adopted families, the parents have lost three out of four children. I am an honorary fifth child and I feel quite honored to be a part of that, but death is a part of life. And in death, there are endings. But as I keep saying about this current situation, and I choose my words carefully because there is a heightened anxiety and justifiably so, because I think there is an ending. There are endings. There are multiple endings that are going to occur as a result of what is now a cohort effect, the COVID-19 pandemic. But we are yet to see how far and how deep this will be embedded in our psyche. So we can't keep it out of our mind. It spills over just like a cup into our dreams, our daily life, and what we had perceived as possible futures. And even as children, we fear not being worthwhile, and it's almost akin to being dead, to being ignored. And death is a visitor to us all in our work as counsellors, psychologists and therapists. 
And if we don't discuss it, we are ignoring it and giving it power that it really doesn't deserve. Often, most therapists avoid discussions of death. However, in my work <laughs> as a school psychologist, it became part and parcel of my everyday to ask a student, are you thinking of killing yourself? Or have you a plan to commit suicide? We all avoid death. But for me, confronting it, having compassion around it, and understanding its inevitability in our life brings peace, acceptance, and growth. And thus, we enter this, the topic of today, death and endings. And I invite you to grab a cup of tea and join with me as we contemplate our own mortality and our confrontation of this part of life, death. It is no easy subject, but then therapy and life is not easy, as we are seeing every day, today, yesterday, and we are unsure of how long but at least for the immediate few weeks around us, wherever we are in the world. And I take this moment to give thanks to you for sharing this deep and quite difficult subject with me. To continue this episode, I would like to read from Irvin Yulam, The Gift of Therapy, an open letter to a new generation of therapists and their patients. And although this book was written many, many years ago, in 2002, well, not so many, that's 18 years, but it seems like many years since I have read it and I picked it up again just recently. And I want to share with you just a brief, brief excerpt. Chapter 42, page 128. Death and Life Enhancement. Most mental health workers who tend to the dying have during their training been advised to read Tolstoy's story, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Ivan, or Ivan Ilyich, a mean-spirited bureaucrat dying in agony, stumbles upon a stunning insight at the very end of his life. He realises he is dying so badly because he has lived so badly. His insight begets great personal change, and in his last days, Ivan Ilyich's life is flooded with a peace and meaningfulness that he had never achieved previously. 
Many other great works of literature contain a similar message. For example, in War and Peace, Pierre, the protagonist, is transformed after a last second reprieve from a firing squad. One of my personal favourites, this is an aside, in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge does not suddenly become a new man because of yuletide cheer. Rather, his transformation occurs when the spirit of his future permits him to witness his own death and the stranger squabbling over his possessions. The message in all these works is simple and profound. Though the physicality of death destroys us, the idea of death may save us. I have, through many years, encountered death. Thank you to Irvin Yalom for that piece. And I encourage you to read any of Yalom's work. Um, perhaps Love's Executioner, when Nietzsche wept. And he has a wonderful wit in looking at a topic that most people consider sombre and morbid. However, for me, death is reality. And I am faced with it on multiple layers. The death of the old selves, the death of traits and behaviours, the death of people we know and love, the death of pets we know and love. Death is with us and travels beside us every day of our life. And whilst many people fear to go where angels do, I tend to jump in. And some people who know me know that well. Jump in where angels fear to tread or where others fear to tread. Maybe not angels, because they are also here with us. And I have a deep spirituality, which is quite eclectic, and I think gives me balance and solace in a world that the only constant we know is change and death and possibly taxes. <laughs> so as we are facing a new world, a world of staying in, a world of social distancing, a world where we have this wonderful thing called the internet, which we can use to connect with others, but we also must limit and put it to bed at times so that we are not over inundated by the myriad of media broadcasts on the death and COVID-19 pandemic that surrounds us. When we are thinking about death, we think about a culture, a culture of death or a culture of avoidance of death. And many cultures in the West avoid death, avoid the discussion of it, avoid the reality that it is one day, as Yalom had said, going to greet us in full physicality However, if we do understand death so completely, as an existentialist may say, 
it makes us live more completely. And I believe this is why I take opportunities that people do not. There's not many people that have lived in three countries of the, of, around the world on a middle income, not, not wealthy, wealthy by, for many people, yes, but I take chances, I travel, I do things that people fear to do, and I do a lot on my own as a single female. And I have achieved multiple degrees on my own due to perseverance, challenge, and sacrifice. It is not an alien concept to me. And I have faced death three times in car accidents where I've walked away and police have said, I do not know how you walked away from that. And these don't leave you untouched, these experiences. In fact, as Yulam and other existentials would say, existentialists would say, in our everyday mode, we are surrounded by material things. What's what we see in the world? The cup in front of us, the tea with the steam. And we're always wondering about what's happening. I keep getting asked, how is it where you are? Are you in lockdown? But in another mode, we exist in the realm beyond those everyday concerns, as Heidegger would assert, the ontological mode. And we are in state, always a state, of being ready for something. And we don't know what the trigger might be for that something, but personal change is the hoped result. And in therapy, Our goal is to shift from that everyday mode of feeling fearful about our death to helping understand and accept death and move into this ontological mode. That, and it sometimes takes experiences such as COVID-19 to jolt us out of this everyday striving to get ahead, striving to earn money, striving to do this, instead of taking time to stop and breathe and be. And if we're talking about setting boundaries, there is one boundary over which we have no control, and that is our own death. From the day we are born, to the day we meet our end. That time is unknown. Unless we are put in a finite situation where we know we have a terminal illness. And it is then that people reevaluate their lives, reassess what they're doing, and put themselves forward in a capacity to change what has been and what will be. And so on that note, I hope you enjoy these next 
few minutes or hour in discussing what we do to confront our own death and alter our perspectives on the way we deal with death. See you soon. As we sit and contemplate my topic of the day or the month, having been in self-isolation for five weeks now, not like everyone else, one week or even a few days, my self-isolation started uh, beginning of March and I'm in week five. So I'm not sure if I'm experiencing grief. <laughs> I did experience grief. Um, I am constantly grieving the loss of somebody. And when somebody passes unexpectedly, we are thrown into what some would term a shock to the system. And our grief can be sort of disenfranchised or longer or compounded by the shocking nature of a sudden unexpected death. And that is where it is really important to have processes and supports in place. And uh, what I want to talk about right now is we are surrounded by the notion of death as a pandemic rules and reigns. And I mean, reigns, R-A-I-N-S, down upon us, and reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S, over our psyche. So we really need to consider ways to protect ourselves and accept the reality of life, socially distancing from others and self-isolating. As an existentialist, I find this to be the epitome of life anyway. And I feel that we are all going through our own analysis of life and perhaps rethinking, reflecting and reviewing what the next chart of our life may be. And I actually see this period of time as a blessing and I am grateful for it because despite the fact that I'm probably working twice or three times as much from home as I would normally, I'm also given the time to examine topics such as this and reflect upon my future goals, especially when it's compounded by the recent loss, sudden unexpected death of my sister many, many years, decades before that was expected. But I have not been a stranger to death for as long as I can remember, and it has visited me consistently since I was two. And perhaps the reality that many uh, Westerners experience today, which is kind of a sheltering and an avoidance of the topic of death, has not been my life. <laughs> In fact, my life has had more death than many people I know at my age and even in my 20s and 30s, I still had experienced more death than a lot of people I knew around me. And perhaps it is for these reasons that I have a calm acceptance of death 
But I also believe it's my upbringing and my farming background and being surrounded by life and death and the cycle of life and birth and an acceptance that this is the way it is and still being profoundly impacted by it. But nonetheless, being able to accept that we are all part of a bigger scheme in things and whether or not you believe in a creator, a higher being or an omnipotent power, I believe that we all can benefit from a belief in our mortality. And as Yulam would say, that death and the acceptance of death actually brings us to a fuller life. So what he would say is that in the world around us, that death is everywhere. It haunts us. It's a visitor to everything we do. And perhaps we need to be more confrontational and examine death and speak more explicitly about it than is quite common in at least my Western cultures. And again, I am very grateful to my upbringing and my parents for allowing me to see the reality and the gore and the guts of death from my childhood. And by that I mean growing up on a farm, we used to kill our own animals. And these were animals that I actually had formed an attachment to because I was the carer of a lot of the calves. And was the only one that could actually go near a lot of them. And then they would be cut and killed and left hanging to bleed out on the paddock for me to witness and see that life that had been so vibrant and so colourful and so full of personality. Yes, cows have wonderful personalities. <laughs> cut short. And the same with chickens and the loss of animals in general because when you live on a farm things happen and when I I took quite a responsibility for the lives of the creatures which were entrusted in my responsibility and I remember going away one weekend to a friend's because we lived in quite rural and remote areas so you didn't just pop over after school <laughs> you waited till Friday and went away for the weekend and came back on Monday after school and I came back to find that my favorite cow had died because um, my mother had left her in the clover tomb long and she had bloated and died because I wasn't there to ensure that that didn't happen. It was not my fault and it was not her fault and it is life. And I think when you're a young child and you understand that life and death are inter intricately intertwined, then you become more accepting of your own mortality. And in that, I would like to talk about the process of grief because I think that we need to discuss grief and loss, which is occurring around us, and the fear and uncertainty that such things as a pandemic and a crisis lead to. And unfortunately, in psychology and psychiatry, there's a medical model, and then there's my model, which um, 
presents more a sociological model, a sociology of emotions that separates the medical idea of grief resembling an illness from which one should recover to actually accepting that grief is a part of life and is deeply embedded in our social, cultural and historical background. And when we separate grief from our social context, our culture, our history, and what I would call our humanity, we risk measuring it in terms of illness and stress and depression and sickness and other indicators of poor health. And yes, grief does cause poor health. We have stress, we don't sleep, we don't eat. For me, often I lose my appetite. And when I lost my father last year, I was actually really physically sick after being delayed in transit back from Canada to Australia. So I missed him and I didn't see him. And I was grieving the loss of not actually saying goodbye but I had been saying goodbye for eight years and spent a blessed eight, extra eight years with my father that I wasn't expecting. So I actually knew he was dying and I think that made it easier than the sudden unexpected loss of my sister who was quite young and no one knew. So grief is associated with physiological symptoms. Yes, we get sad. Yes, we cry. I bawled my eyes out for a week and didn't eat. I was not hungry. And I still miss my father. And I passed the one year anniversary. And I talk to him daily, especially when I eat hot chilies, which I reintroduced to him from Mexico and said, Dad, look, we've got some chilies. And then years later, he has multiple plants growing around his house still today that came from about 20 years ago now. And if we think of humanity as being founded in love, which I am very lucky to have had a very loved childhood and loving childhood, that's not to say it was perfect, not to say that there wasn't dysfunction. There's always some sort of issues. But every day when I see clients and see people who do not have the blessing of childhood that I had, I am grateful for my parents and my siblings and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and cousins for the love that I was given as a child. And yes, there's a price we pay for love. And as Parks would say, it is the cost of commitment that we grieve. We grieve the loss. We grieve that social and intimate relationship, that friendship, that family member that's not there. And I believe, as do many, that grief is therefore not an illness to be treated, but actually an elemental form of being human. It forms 
part of life and life is death and endings and also new beginnings. And as Valentine would say, it's not a condition to be treated. It is in fact a response that is normal, a social emotion and an interpersonal process because if we weren't attached to people and we didn't have relationships and we didn't have expectations of those relationships and obligations as a result of those relationships, we would not grieve. And the feelings that are associated with our grief vary not only according to the proximity and proximal distance of the death, but also to what else is going on around us. And a sociological model of grief focuses on grief as an emotion that is not an illness, it is not pathologized. It is a normal emotional response to the loss of many things, including a significant other, a significant parent or figure, a child, a pet. And it can also be a really normal emotional response to the loss of a dream and the loss of a way of life. And in fact, without grief, I don't feel we fulfill our full humanity. And there are many theoretical models of grief. And each theory has its own assumptions and concepts. But for the most part, I think that there are similarities and limitations of theory. But there is no limitation to our grief. And when the DSM-5 pathologizes grief after experiencing six months of intense despair, I think that they have missed the point of being human. And I think that they have not separated out the illness factor and instead looked at the whole human, and not looked at the whole human. DSM-5 tends to schism us out, compartmentalize, pass out parts, so that we become pieces of a pie rather than a whole pie. And we learn to cope with loss. Time does heal, but it will never replace the loss of that person that we have had in our lives. And we form particular rituals around our loss. So each culture and society and religion has mourning rituals. But those mourning rituals are expressions of grief. And they shape our grief, as well as our grief is shaped by the mourning rituals. And while grief refers to an emotion and mourning refers to an action, we can always bring the two together because they are contextualized in the process of 
understanding and accepting and feeling the impacts of death. So while we might like to separate out humanity and separate out parts of us, I believe that there is too much interrelationship and too much similarity to be able to say that this person should be hospitalized or is ill or is suffering a disorder because, oh my gosh, it's been six months and they're still really grieving the loss of their loved one. I ask you, if you have a partner for 20 years, 30 years, 60 years as my mother and father did, and one disappears, either by dementia, by physical loss and death, or just through the loss of who they are and health. and It is a huge time of loss. And I don't see six months or a year as being a time frame to easily encapsulate the despair that can happen when two beings who've loved each other are no longer together. And that love is not perfect, but it is perfect in its imperfection. And to think of grief in a holistic sense, that's not to label it as negative or positive, a wonderful quote that I um, like to think of in terms of our grieving process is that grief is in two parts. The first part is loss and the second is the remaking of life. And that pretty much encapsulates the dual process um, of grief, dual process model of grief. But it's more than that and the quote that I put on my father's headstone that I selected and felt is very fitting is in the gardens of memory in the palace of dreams is where we shall meet it is a quote from the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland one of my favourite childhood books. But it is also a quote that I feel encapsulates when two people who are separated will come together again. And that is part of grief. Our ability to have a positive reappraisal of death. We, not to necessarily gloss over the horrendous loss and the horrendous emotions, but to hope that in all this, regardless of whether there is an afterlife or not, that people who have lived a good life and loved well can meet again in a pain-free, nirvanic, heaven-like place. And whether you believe in the rebirth of souls or whether you believe in just dying and go to heaven or hell is irrelevant. 
the first order of grief is to accept that a person is gone. The second order is to be able to transition between the previous life that you had, the previous role that you had, and the new role that is thrust upon you through the loss of another. So I ask you, as I come to the 20 minute mark, to rethink the loss that this pandemic is bringing to us. And to think of how this death of the life that we have known may be reappraised. I talk about the decrease in climate change due to humans being stopped from our ever-growing materialism and lack of care for others, their stopping of industry, they're giving the earth a chance to breathe, giving the water a chance to clean itself like an oxygen lung of the Amazon. And I must say that if we look at loss and death with a positive reappraisal, instead of getting immersed in the negative, immersed in the quagmire of multiple media representations that death and fear and uncertainty and loss, we can manage to emerge like a phoenix from the ashes and see socially that yes, we are changed. Contextually, yes, we are changed. The type of loss, the quality of our previous experiences, yes, they are changed. But really, we are in control of that change within. And whilst I could continue to discuss the many different ways that our emotions are social, that our grief is a social emotion and not a pathologizing emotion. And I can talk about this for an hour. What I would like to hear from you is how you are going to reappraise this time of COVID-19 and look at your previous losses and how they may be impacting you and your current losses. And I want to make one last note before ending this. In times of grief and loss, we all benefit from support. And I urge you to contact people, professionals, should you need. We are here. If you wish to speak with me, I have an email which you can contact me on and anybody around the world can contact me on to find places to talk. There are national hotlines in whichever country you are in. And I wish for you to know that you are not alone in this. And together, because grief is a social emotion, we can emerge. 
with a new beginning. This is Dr. Leanne signing out for now. I look forward to seeing you soon.